0: Good morning, that's my little Calvin. (laughs) You'll get to know all the names of my children. We're in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. The title for the sermon this morning is The Pursuit of Joy. Pursuit of joy. The overarching imperative for this section is found in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's the imperative that governs this entire section all the way to the end of the book. It will be repeated in chapter 4, verse 4. And so we know that Paul's concerned about your joy and about your rejoicing. The theme for the whole book of Philippians is rejoice, the Lord is King. And that does not change. This morning we will be reading from Philippians 3 verse 12 through to 16. So this is the word of God. Be attentive to its instruction. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this, speaking back of the resurrection, or I'm already made perfect. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, grant us now insight into this passage. Grant us the pursuit of joy to know what it is, how to achieve it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the title for this sermon is The Pursuit of Joy, but I want to speak to you about happiness. The reason I want to speak to you about happiness and using the term happiness is because that's often the language we have in our hearts. Are we happy? <laughs> we live in an age of dichotomies. We like to separate things, theological principles from practical examples in living. We like to speak about the biblical doctrine of joy, and we'll speak about it all day long, but you will remain unhappy <laughs> because we have to separate these things in our own minds and hearts. The culture has taught us we ought to be happy. We have different means of becoming happy, different approaches. But the question I want to pose to you is, are you happy? It's a loaded question. It's a deep question. It's an important question. In fact, philosophers have wrestled with this question for centuries. Blaise Pascal wrote in the 17th century, man wishes to be happy. And only wishes to be happy and cannot wish not to be so. But why is it that so many people are miserable? Why is it that perhaps this morning you are feeling pretty miserable yourself? I think the Apostle Paul would say that it's because we aren't perfect. We live in a state of imperfection, and this necessarily will at times make us unhappy. This doesn't mean that we cannot ever be happy. Of course, all people are happy at some points in their lives. Some people have extended periods in their lives where they are genuinely happy. And yet it is so easy for something to happen that robs us of our joy and causes us a tremendous amount of unhappiness. And then we wonder if we will ever be happy again. Happiness is central to who I am as a human being. It's the pursuit of every single person. It is interesting, even depression itself was the antithesis of happiness exists because the person doesn't feel that they have achieved happiness in this life. And so it is central that I want to speak about the nature of happiness from our text this morning. I want to address why we find ourselves in cycles of unhappiness, what true happiness is, and how we can attain it. Now, you might be wondering where I find this language in the text. (laughs) I don't see this language in the text, Mornay. It's not in the Bible here in front of me that we just read. So I want to justify my argument here. I take this from the overarching imperative found in 3 verse 1 that we just read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's the imperative right there. Now to rejoice, after all, is a fruit of happiness. We rejoice at weddings with a wedding party. We rejoice when we receive good news that we have been promoted. We rejoice at the birth of our children. Jesus says, heaven rejoices when someone repents of their sin. It's an an expression of happiness, of joy. That something is right in this world, that we are happy. And so another way to say rejoice is to say, be happy. (laughs) And it has a very deep meaning in Scripture, not so much in the culture that we have, which has cheapened the idea of happiness. Happiness is deep, embedded in who we are as people. And the scriptures are very much concerned with human happiness. The reason I say this is because Jesus, when he opens up his Sermon on the Mount, deals with the Beatitudes. The happy ones... Those who have obtained favor from God. That's where he starts when he expounds his the moral law according to him. When he corrects the understanding of Israel and how they have interpreted the law and the teachers that have told him what the law is all about, how he corrects it. He starts here with the nature of happiness, with a blessed life, with the abundant life, with the life that has received favor from God. He goes back to this whole Tradition in Scripture itself. Psalm 1 is an example of this. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one. So Scripture is very much concerned with your happiness. It is. Not in the cheap way, but in the real deep sense of human fulfillment and where you find that. That's why I deal with it. Now we're going to consider our text in three stages. Firstly, I will say Christians will not always be happy. I want you to know that. Christians will not always be happy. But Christians can and will experience true happiness when we think of our present sufferings with maturity. Christians will not always be happy, but we can and will experience true happiness when we think of our present sufferings with maturity. All right, let's start with the first. Christians will not always be happy. The first thing I want to address is why Christians go through cycles of unhappiness. And the reason is important because it is often the fact that we beat ourselves up over it. We often find ourselves in low points in life, and we know the commands to rejoice, and we know the commands um, to take delight in Scripture, take delight in the church, take delight in those things that God has given us, but we don't feel it and we don't sense it, and so we beat ourselves up over it. And the question is, why do we find ourselves in these cycles at times? Why do we go through these emotions? Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 12 here in our text that, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What is he referring to? Well, he is referring to the resurrection in 3, verse 11. That's what he's referring back to. He has not been resurrected yet. He is referring to the future where through the righteousness of Christ granted to him, he has been raised to an everlasting life and will live in a perfect existence in a perfect world with perfect bodies that have no sin. That's what he's referring to. I have not yet already attained this. This is a sense that we get from the term translated here, perfect in the ESV. It is a word that can refer to the ultimate goal of something. Paul wants to remind his readers that even he, as an apostle of Christ, has not yet been made perfect. Why? Because he has not reached his final destination. Now, there may have been teaching going around during this time that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we ought to be perfect. (laughs) We have that old Wesleyan sinless perfection, a heresy that says that Christians can attain perfection in this life, and that might be what's granted here in Paul. The apostles surely have attained perfections. We have this in Roman Catholic dogma as well the sainthood of people. They attain a perfection, that they skip purgatory and go straight into heaven because they live perfect lives at some point in their, in their human lives on earth. Paul says, even as an apostle, I have not yet been made Perfect, We live in the imperfect right now, and we hope for the perfect. Now, I know some of you may feel like you just want the Holy Spirit to take your passions over and control you. You may even have prayed it. When we struggle against sin and it becomes exhausting and tiring, we often pray. Lord, just, just control me, take over, I pray this. But th- that's not what the Spirit does. That's not the Christian life. Yes, the Spirit gives you new affections, new desires, renews your desire. It you makes sure you want to live a life pleasing to God, gives you the ability to exercise self-control. But there is no perfection in this life. We will continue to strive by the Spirit's power against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as a result, we will go through cycles of unhappiness. (laughs) It will make us miserable sometimes. Why? Well, first, because at times we will be confronted with our own sin. This is the first and probably most frequent reason we lack happiness in life. The emotional feeling, the desire for joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount writes, happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness, and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. The vast majority, alas, are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. So here Lloyd-Jones himself, Lloyd-Jones acknowledges the pursuit of humanity is happiness. It's, it's what people want, but yet people pursue it in such a way that ends in misery. Why? Because they are pursuing seductive pleasures. They are, pursued, they are pursuing success or power or the very things that fade over time. Now, That's true. Success, power... These things do provide temporal satisfaction, sex. But yet when we place our hopes in these things, when we place our confidence in these things, when we trust that these are the things that's going to provide us with a peaceful life and those things are taken away from us, it reveals that we just placed our confidence in the wrong place and we end up being unhappy again. Classic book in Scripture is Ecclesiastes, to point this out. What is Solomon trying to do? Solomon shows that the pursuit of worldly pleasure and worldly happiness always ends in futility. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. It doesn't fulfill. Because we are always giving over to our sinful tendencies to fill things and replace God with those things. And it ends in futility. Futility. Unhappiness, misery. So the first place is that our sin confronts us and as a result of that, we become unhappy. Sinful tendencies makes us unhappy. Secondly, sometimes the world itself throws us a curveball, the world in which we live. We continue to live in a sin-ridden world with fallen people all around, many of whom are unredeemed, if not most. Even within the church, there's a balance, there's a mix, there's redeemed and unredeemed people. And as a result, our values are, will be confronted by contrasting values. And this produces in us a sense of misery. We become exhausted, the constant conflict that surrounds us, and feel despondent. And sometimes, the seeming success and happiness of those who surround us depresses us. This is what Asaph felt like in Psalm 73. Asaph wrote this, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever felt like that? You know, sometimes maybe when you're coming here in the summer and you're driving in to come to church and you turn into the parking lot, Harbor Reform, and you see a steady stream of cars going straight to the beach on a beautiful, warm day, right? Wow. I just wish I could go and enjoy the day at the beach. I have to come to church. Have you thought that? Have you felt that sometimes? Or perhaps you've driven through some wealthy neighborhoods and working late hours, long hours, and like I do sometimes, and you drive through, it's six thirty, seven 7 p.m. at night, you're still coming from work and the people are out there already at 4 o'clock playing with their kids, enjoying the afternoon, basking in all of the things they've received, and And you think to yourself, what's the point? What's the point of this godly pursuit? What's the point of godliness? If it's just making me miserable. Look at them, they're so happy. That was Asaph. That's the context of Israel, right? He looked at the wicked. But then he says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned the end. (laughs)
1: See, Esau recognized
0: when he came to the sanctuary and he understood the hope that he had in a redeemed Israelite, and he looked at the futility of his fleeting pleasures around him, he recognized the end of those pursuits. And sometimes we're confronted with this. It makes us deeply unhappy. And thirdly, sometimes we are just under direct attack from Satan. Temptations surround us. It can just feel like, you know, badgering temptations, for example, on your computer screens, perhaps, continuously. You're trying to fight for purity. You are trying to um, embrace holiness. You are trying to pursue Christ. And the next thing, you are just being barged by images and things on your computer screens that you don't want, and you you put filters on. But it just feels sometimes we're under attack, whether it's temptations for pleasure and comforts around us or at times whether it's temptations to sin. And sometimes it's conflict and persecution. Sometimes it just feels like we are a constant attack, direct attack from Satan. And that robs us of our joy, makes us unhappy. So here it is that Paul says that I have not yet been made perfect. And Paul himself, in acknowledging that, understood that he is subjected to these very same temptations and the same fights and the same things that the church here is subjected to. He's not some super apostle that has transcended, become perfect, and therefore will not experience these temptations himself. He understands very perfect. He has not made perfect yet. And so he has to press on. But here's the second point. The good news is that Christians can and will experience true happiness. Christians can and will experience true
1: happiness.
0: (laughs) Now the scriptures, as I said, have spoken about happiness in a variety of different ways. Blessed, the blessed life. What is the blessed life? What is that? You see, our culture cheapens the nature of happiness. But, but when you go to the Scripture, it's about well-being, holistic well-being, the whole person. What is it to be truly happy? What is it to be truly blessed? And the Scriptures speak of a whole person. Your spiritual reality, your physical well-being, your emotional state. All things are covered under the term blessed, the term that we translate as blessed. It's a blessed life. Psalm 1, the blessed life. Blessed is the man. Who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers, nor sits in the seat of the unrighteous, but his ways, and his, all his ways, he meditates on Scripture day and night. What is the way of the blessed life? Scripture is full of the description of two paths, the life that leads to blessing and the life that leads to the destruction. Paul's going to address that again in verses 17 to 21 in this text. He's going to look at the way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to everlasting life. He's going to contrast those. That's what Scripture is all about. But the language of the blessed life is found most prominently in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. We just read that this morning. And here we note that the blessed life is eschatological. That's what Jesus starts pointing towards. There's going to come a time in the future when you will receive the fullness of what Scripture promises in Psalm 1. That blessed life, the full life, the abundant life, the life that is fruitful. It always yields its fruit in season. The life that is drawing from the the rivers, the, the abundant waters of life. Jesus is going to say that the full realization of that is eschatological. It's in the future. It's going to come. Consider the language for a moment. We read it this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you can continue through all of those Beatitudes, and you'll see the eschatological, the future meaning of that. They shall be. In the present, there are mourning, there's mourning, there's there's divisions. (laughs) Blessed are the peacemakers. There's all sorts of things that rob us of our joy and happiness in the present. But yet Jesus says there's going to come a time those who are blessed, who has favored from God, those who are in the gospel are going to be comforted. They're going to receive something. But then he makes an interesting turn in verses 11 to 12. And this is the climax of the Beatitudes. He says this, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. And he says rejoice and be glad. Present imperative, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, right at that point, what he does is he brings our future reward into the present with his language. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. You see, there's there's a future anticipation that one day all things tears are going to be wiped out. Yes, the scripture speaks about that. One day we are going to receive the abundant life. But yet, there's also a present fulfillment in the fact that knowing this ought to give you reason to rejoice and be glad. It ought to be a ground for your happiness. And it's interesting that Paul uses this in Philippians 3 verse 1. This is the overarching imperative. The point is that though the fullness of the blessed or happy life will only be attained in the future when we are made perfect, there is an aspect of that future reward that can be experienced in the present, in the here, in the now. How, you might ask. Well, Paul uses two verbs here in our text that he has already used in verse 6 when he wrote in his Jewish ideals of Jewish heritage. He says, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. The persecutor of the church. That's what Paul was before he was converted. Now, the word translated persecutor is the same word used twice in our passage, translated as press on. It's the same word, press on. A literal translation of this word is to pursue. And then the verb translated, to make it my own, is the verb literally trans- translated to grasp or see something. The same action he did when he pursued the church to have his members imprisoned. He's using the language of his pers- persecution, his previous life in Judaism. And Paul is saying here now, with the same passion that Paul persecuted the church, he now pursues the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's using the same language... Describing what he was previously and turning that zeal into something that he pursues Christ in now. You see, he connects us very much with what he was before. Has his passion for God changed? No. But his identity has. His goals have. They have been altered. Now, rather than pursuing and casting people into prison, he now pursues the Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge of him. The surpassing worth of knowing him. He pursues the righteousness that comes by faith. We looked at that last week. But how do I connect this passage with the language of the blessed or happy life when the language is not used here directly? You've got to ask that question. I do so because of the overarching imperative. 3 verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord which is used as an imperative in Matthew 5, verse 12. And then the language of Paul's persecution, which is now turned into the pursuit of the knowledge of the Lord at the cost of being persecuted. He's turned right around in his conversion. Being the pursuer, he is now the pursued. And he still says, rejoice in the Lord. He's sitting in prison right here, writing this letter. You see, Paul's pursuit of Christ while being persecuted counts him now among the blessed or happy disciples that Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes. And therefore, I don't find it strange that Paul uses this language to encourage these disciples in Philippi, because they're facing the same things that he was facing. And he's urging them to rejoice and shows them how to, from his own life, pursue the blessed life. And how does he do it? I press on. Twice he uses that. I press on. Paul is presuming ultimate happiness, knowing that he has not already been made perfect or fully obtained it, but yet there's a future coming. I press on. I press on. And then he says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And then he gives a secret to his zealous pursuit of the blessed life. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Imagine if Paul just stayed there in his stoning of Stephen when he was converted.
1: Hmm. Oh, we can wallow in our griefs. <laughs> you
0: know. But we have to look at the big picture. This is what Paul did. In order to bring the blessed life into the present, yes, there's suffering, and we're not always going to be happy. That's just true. And you can't always just go around as if life is just great. You can't do that. You can't lie to yourself. You've got to acknowledge the difficulties, but you've got to have a good eschatology to get through it. Paul says it twice. I press on. And here again in verse 13, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Here it is, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean here? See, Paul's new identity, which was once grounded in his Jewish identity through the law of Moses, is now grounded entirely in his union and communion with Christ. Paul's conviction is not that he pursues Christ on his own grounds and merits, like he did with the law, but rather, listen to verse t- 3, verse 12. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Oh. That's what it's like when you're a Christian. Christ has made you his own. That's what we believed, isn't it? He is the one that pours the Spirit into your hearts so that you may believe. <laughs> He's the one that redeems you from a life of misery. And set your feet upon the rock. He's the one that atones you for your sin. And Paul recognized that Jesus made me his own. You see, this is the grounding imperative for Paul. Paul understood that he was not his own, <laughs> he was bought at a price the death of Christ. And now he's brought into this beautiful communion and union. With Christ this union and communion with Christ provides present benefits that enable Paul to rejoice and be glad, even though he knows the future goal is for perfection, that the future resurrection is still coming. I have not yet been raised to life that 's what Paul said earlier. I have not been raised, people. I am still pursuing this. I have not been raised from the dead. I have not been made perfect. That life is still going to come. That's a heresy that people were teaching in the first century. But yet he knows that this perfect union and communion with Christ and God is his now in the present. He has union and communion with Christ. That's a present reality. And it's in this union and communion with Christ that he's able to To persevere. This is the only reason why he can press on. Because he shares in this union communion with Christ. It's grounded in the conviction that God has forgiven all of his sins. Listen to what he says. You know, Paul quotes from from the Psalms in his own section in Romans 4, where he has a little section on the Beatitudes itself. And a question the Psalms here, and it says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the Christian. And that's the grounds for your union and communion with Christ. And that's the reason for your blessed life. And that should be the cause of your happiness. This is what Paul is striving towards. The goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ. To be made perfect. Yes. But he has that forgiveness in the present. He is forgiven. That's why he no longer dwells in the past. He no longer looks back. He no longer holds on to his accolades or what could have been. But he receives and he has this understanding that God in Christ has forgiven him of all of his unrighteousness. And he has received the perfect righteousness of Christ. What is there to be unhappy about? You see, the happy person is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David knew that experientially. He deserved death. Adultery of Bathsheba and murder of her husband. But yet, God showed him mercy. And we ourselves have received great mercy in Christ. So this means that Christians can experience happiness in the present, friends. You can experience it if this is your conviction. If this is your understanding. If you know that there's abundant debt against God, yet it's been wiped away. Clean. And not just that, but I've been given an entire perfect record to go with that. Jesus' righteousness. I've been given that. If if you soak in this reality, you can live the abundant life now. Not fully, because that time's still gonna come, but yet you taste of it here in the present. But we need to think maturely about this. And that's where we get to the next. We can and will experience true happiness when we think of our present sufferings with maturity. You see, we still have this problem of the cycles of unhappiness. We still will face that. We still will go through those cycles. We still will run into sin that we ourselves commit, and that will put put us sometimes into bouts of depression. We still confront the world and and all of the pleasures that it that it offers that we need to resist. And yet sometimes feel like we want to give in, and that gives us this amount of misery. And sometimes it's just this great onslaught, right? We still face the flesh, the world, and the devil. And when suffering comes, it so often robs us of our joy and casts us into depression. Suffering. Suffering. We don't expect it. We live in an Epicurean age, which is like we live in a time, especially here in the West, where there's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of talk about, you know, you can make it in life where well, you can do whatever you want to. And there's a lot of touting around these big archons who have been very successful in life. We like to talk only about successful people. And when we have church gatherings even, and we go and see I mean, people talking in big churches, it's generally someone who's been successful, someone from the New York Yankees perhaps has become a Christian. There's always this success-driven culture in which we are, which is not a bad thing. We have to be ambitious. But yet for those of us, perhaps ordinary mortals... <laughs> like us, we often can be depressed about that. Especially when suffering comes. Because that's not my life. It's not this great success story. And part of the problem is that we live in a fallen world with imperfect creatures all around us. So suffering is bound to come. We will always go through these cycles while we live on earth. And for some, they may even experience very long bouts of unhappiness in life. Very long bouts. I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones himself in his struggle with depression. Or William Cooper. Long bouts. There's no, no indication that William Cooper ever got out of depression. Ever. Though the hymns he wrote were marvelous and we sing them to our day. There's no indication that he ever got out of it. Yet Paul urges us to think maturely about our present condition. Let those of you, Paul says, who are mature, think this way. See, we can experience joy and happiness, not lasting joy and lasting happiness, but nonetheless, glimmers and tastes of it, even prolonged experiences of it, if we hold true to what we have attained. What is interesting is that with the verb think, he goes back to Philippians 2, verse 5, where he urges believers to have the same mind as Christ. This is what he's encouraging you to be. Our eternal destination, which is grounded in our union and communion with Christ, and the righteousness that comes from that union, should make us think like Christ in the present. And Christ's glorification enabled him to be humble to the point of death on our behalf. He sacrificed himself. But how is he able to live a self-sacrificial life? In humanly speaking, humanly terms. We have the great Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the prayer? This is our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, may this cup pass from me. This is Jesus. Even Jesus, under the really intense suffering that sin deserves. And... The author of Hebrews says that you have not striven against sin so much to the shedding of blood yet. (laughs) You haven't sweated drops of blood because of the reality of your sin that you're about to face under judgment. Jesus did that for you. How? Hebrews 12 verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he enjoyed the cross. And so too for believers. Believers. If we will allow our future glory to inform our present circumstances, we too may experience joy as we endure hardships. This is, after all, what Jesus urged his disciples to do. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So it is true that we can experience joy and genuine happiness even under present trying circumstances. But we must fight for it. We cannot give in to our circumstances. We, cannot, we must allow our future glory to motive, motivate us in the present. We have to think right about it. And we have to pray about it. There's a process. And I want to say here, just in this point, that you can't rush the process. Friends, I see a lot of haste in this current process in which we're in. People just want things to be fixed. I understand that. You want life to be fixed and life to be happy and things to be pursued and things to be right with everyone again. Everyone wants that, but you know what? That's going to be in glory one day. Everything's going to be perfectly fixed one day. But you can't rush processes. Especially very intense, emotionally bound up processes that needs time for reflection, reflection. Some of you might be happy at the moment for quite a long time to come. But there is a process you can follow to fight for joy. And you should use this process. We will have at times and periods in life where we will be despondent. We will be. We will lack joy. Our lives will seem unhappy. And Paul will deal with this in chapter 4, verse 4 to 9. When he returns to the imperative, rejoice in the Lord. He's going to do that again in chapter 4. And there he's going to describe the process. We'll look at that in detail. But he says this in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see the process? There's a process for your time of suffering. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. When I go into bouts of depression or withdrawal on happiness or just misery, I generally tend to stop praying. I generally move away from supplication. I certainly go away from Thanksgiving.
1: <laughs> but you see, by virtue of our union and communion with Christ, we have access to God. We live in a, you
0: know counseling culture. We want to go to a counselor. We want people to understand us, to hear us. When we're going through tough times and trials, we want to go and... What do you call it? Uh, I'm a verbal processor. We want to go and verbally process with someone. You know, when we're going through tough trials, we live in a counseling culture, but you have the greatest counselor available to you who understands all things perfectly. And when we're going through tough times, we so rarely... Persist in prayer and supplication and give thanksgiving to Him. I know it sounds very simple and simplistic, but you know what? That is the answer. (laughs) Why? Because Paul says the Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is near, He is present. And you know what? He's closer than you think. Why? Because we are united to Christ through the Spirit and thus have communion with God the Father and His Son by virtue of being joined with Him. He is so close to you. He is closer to you than the person that sits across the table from you. He is closer to you than your spouse.
1: You have been joined with
0: Christ in a bond that will never break. So mature thinking fights for joy and pursues it, even when the clouds that surround us are dark. And this was William Cooper's view. Even though he lived with serious depression most of his life, with only glimmers of joy here and there, he wrote this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. (laughs) This is a guy with clinical depression, very serious. It's no indication he ever got out of it. And then he gives this warning at the end of that wonderful poem. He says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. He gets us straight from Job. Remember the story of Job? All the suffering that he faced? Part of the wisdom literature. Job wanted answers. I deserve answers, Job said. I'm going to put God in the dock. When I see him, I'm going to get him to reply. And you know what happens? God does come to Job. But Job never receives the answers to any of his questions. Never. God responds with his person, who he is. And Job recognizes, in light of who God is, his suffering is futile. It's but a moment. God is all wise. He knows why He gives us the things that we face. He is all good. He does it for your good and His glory. He's all loving. He's your Father who's adopted you through Christ. He's given you His Son.
1: And so He's not doing
0: it because He wants you to be miserable. He's doing it because He is working out your good and His glory. In whatever situation it is that you face. So I want to ask you in concluding, are you happy? How are you this morning when you come here to church? Now culture throws around this word like cheap candy, but that doesn't mean we should not dwell on the nature of human happiness. And I ask the question. We don't be over-psychologizing the, the term, but we want to ask a person, one another, sit across from each other, how's it going inside your heart, your soul? Is life happy for you right now? It's nothing wrong with asking someone if they're happy. It is, after all, what we all want to be. It's why we do the things we do. and spend our money the way we do. It's even sometimes
1: why we come to church.
0: Now, in our imperfect state, we will have moments that we may even despair of life itself. Even the Apostle Paul despaired sometimes of life itself. But we must press on. We must persevere. We must continue straining forward to what lies ahead. The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Ultimate happiness is not found in our present imperfect condition. It's not. We will go through cycles of unhappiness and, yes, cycles
1: of happiness too. But we must think maturely about our condition. We will one day be glorified. You will one day be perfected.
0: We will one day sit in glory in heaven. Perhaps with people that we have separated here in this life, all believers. Yet one day we will all be there. I think another great question. I don't even know if it's a true question or not, but history has it penned down somewhere. But George Woodfield was asked about John Wesley. They parted ways in their time, you know, John Wesley and George Woodfield. The Methodists thought out, but John Wesley became Arminian. George Woodfield remained Calvinist, and they separated on those grounds and doctrinal differences and... um, And George Ritfield was asked if he'd ever think he'll see John Wesley up in heaven. And he said, no, no, I won't ever see him. Because he's going to be too far ahead at the throne. And I'm going to be all the way back. Do we have a view of people like that? Believers that we perhaps have separated with during the lifetime? know one day we will be glorified. We're all going to be there. And perhaps for a moment we'll feel a tinge of shame because we deserve to, that Christ will wipe away our tears with his own hands.
1: And we will taste true and genuine happiness when we are perfected. But we are to strive for that in the present through our trials.
0: We are to strive for that goal, that goal that we will be with Christ, that we will be like Christ. That should be our ultimate aim as we press on in the present. Let's pray. Father, grant us us the ability by